Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and uh, we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of St. Luke, take the brief introduction, and then go to chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, when Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, um, assumes, assumes the, uh, the pulpit, and uh, begins to read from the scroll of, of the prophecies of Isaiah. It's kind of a, a melange of uh, Isaiah 68, or 61.1 and Isaiah 58. It is um, very, very clear that Jesus is, uh, is not just quoting the Old Testament, but he's integrating the Old Testament prophecies into his proclamation to the people of Nazareth. And the first is in the, in the introduction. He tells us what he's going to do. And Luke's gospel is, is actually, um, it's pretty orderly. Luke is not going to tell the story chronologically. He makes that very clear to us. And so if we read Luke's gospel and then uh, um, we, and we try to compare it with Matthew or with Mark or with John, what we begin to do is we, we begin to get a variety of, uh, of slants, I suppose we could say, on, on some of the... On some of the um, Texts that we're going to find in Matthew and in in, uh, in Mark, because what Luke is saying, he's going to tell it in an orderly way, and that means that he's going to if he starts with a, with a theme, he's going to finish that theme, even if it doesn't um, correspond to uh, geographic locations or necessarily chronology, but once he starts a thought of the uh, of the mission of Jesus, then he's going to pursue it through to the end of that thought. And in so doing, he's going to violate um, chronology and uh, geographical location and so forth. Because for Luke, he sees if you begin something, then you should finish it. It's, it's, it's his understanding of, uh, of the nature of Jesus' mission. And so it isn't so much like writing history for Luke is, uh, is writing the story completely, but it is following the thought of Jesus. And following that thought of Jesus, Luke moves around and through different times and places to go from the beginning of the end to the story, to the end of the story. And so we're going to find some things that say, wait a minute, now here's a contradiction here is a contradiction in the uh, um, gospel narrative. And so the synoptic problem raises up. And that is that, you know, well, that's not the way Luke, that's not the way Mark tells it, or that's not the way Matthew tells it. Well, Luke tells you in the very beginning, I'm not going to do it that way in the first place. I'm going to do it another way. And that's why even to, uh, Luke even ignores some of the factual information of the other Gospels because he doesn't want to interrupt his story for the sake of historical vignettes and for the sake of pointing out distinctions that he makes. 
that both apply to Jesus but also apply to his disciples and apply to, to the Blessed Mother from time to time. So, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, what Luke is saying. He's introducing it to someone named Theophilus. He introduces the same thing in his Acts of the Apostles to Theophilus. Is that a person or is that a corporate person or individual person? Nobody knows for sure. Most of the commentators have kind of agreed that it is a singular person and that he is using this narrative, this personal narrative, to, to bring um, importance, to bring real importance in, into the focus of his story. So that then becomes the introduction to it, how I'm going to do it, what the occasion of my doing it is. And then um, he goes on to tell exactly what happens. And he says, Jesus, with the power of the Spirit in him, returned to Galilee, and his reputation spread throughout the countryside, and he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as he usually did. And he stood up to read, and they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, Jesus found the paper that, um, and handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And unrolling the scroll, he found, um, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor and proclaim liberty to captives and to the blind new sight to set down the downtrodden free, to set the downtrodden free, and the and to proclaim the Lord's ear of favor. So he's given the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah is one who proclaims the good news and makes the promises, therefore, to the poor. And uh, it's from Luke's Gospel where a lot of this narrative comes from. And the poor of Yahweh are a constant theme within the Gospel of St. Luke. And it has been called, actually, the Gospel of the Poor. He's very, very clear, Luke is very, very clear, to make the poor a special object of the Lord's attention and to place the Lord in a special, place the poor in a special favor to the Lord. Um, this is not necessarily something that jumps out of us in Luke's, in Luke's Gospel all the time. And, uh, and yet, at the same time, then he we, is calling it the gospel of the poor. He shows and he weaves about God's special concern for the poor. We ask ourselves, where does that come from, and why is that such an important element of Luke's gospel? And the answer, the answer is pretty clear, that from the days of the Old Testament, the poor of Yahweh, the poor of the Lord... Um, take a special predominance in the Lord's favor and in his concern for redemption, for the coming of the kingdom. And we know that in doing so, that it was a recognition of the poor's fidelity to, to the poor, uh, to Israel, during the times of hardship with the Lord. Now the residents had come down to the people of Persia, not so much to, uh, to the people in uh, in other places, 
um, but that he, in a special way, has somewhere in his heart uh, a care for them. For their time on this earth is difficult, and difficult as it is, they uh, he usually then compensates them in some way, shape, or form. For it is through their poverty that they have learned fidelity. And I think that all of us can kind of put the pieces of that story together. We know even in our own society, those people who depend on the Lord, who really need the Lord, have a tendency to be much closer to the Lord than those who have the privilege of enjoying the benefits of his presence and yet, um, and yet putting the whole story, the whole life together, less aware of the need for the Lord in their daily lives and less the Lord, less the Lord of aware of the Lord's desire to have those who are without come closer to Him and learn a greater dependence on Him at the time. So, what happens then with this emergence of the poor as special to the Lord is that when the Israelites are returned from Babylon to uh, to to Israel from Mesopotamia to Israel. The story goes, of course, that those who had found successful careers in the city of Boise, and that he also then shows them a kind of a special favor. For those who had been mated in Babylon, those who had been wealthy in Babylon, in, in Babylonia, many of them, did not come back when Darius and, and uh, Cyrus allowed them to return and to rebuild Jerusalem. For many, we can hear them say, you know, I have a very good life here. I've got my wife, my family here. Um, the land has been good to me. The society has been good to me. I think I'm not going to go back, not now. Um, the, the foolhardiness of that um, is obvious. Um, Jerusalem is today as problematic a city as it is, as troubled a city as Jerusalem is today, that uh, at least Jerusalem still exists. And, uh, and the city of Babylon is disappeared into the sands of the Middle Eastern deserts. That despite what is immediate is not necessarily long-lasting. It isn't necessarily a place of anywhere anyone has a particular desire to be. Um, the site of modern-day Babylon is somewhere in the Iraqi deserts, and, uh, and that somewhere in there they are still finding the great treasures of old Babylon. But the city itself is destroyed. And uh, try as they might to destroy the city of Jerusalem, they have been unable to do so, and it still stands. So those who chose somewhere to go versus those who ultimately, without realizing it, chose nowhere to go. And so Jerusalem then also becomes and takes on the characteristic of a chosen place because it has remained through the, through the millennia and the others and the, the others. It has remained and the others have not. So then it says, when, when he came there and they gave him the scroll and he rolled it up of the prophet Isaiah, and then he read the prophet's Isaiah, and he said, the spirit of the Lord has anointed, has given me to me, for he has anointed me. 
He has sent me to bring good to bring good news to to the poor and to proclaim liberty to captives, to bind the to bind new sights and to the blind new sight, and to set the downtrodden free, to it proclaim the good news is favor, uh, the Lord's year of favor. And then he rolled up the scripture. He said it back, gave it back to the assistant and sat down, and so forth. So here we have now a typical synagogue scene taking place, he says, in Nazareth. Jesus has come back. He is already a renowned teacher. And so it's if someone who has a reputation is coming into your town, um, you know, and it's, it, it's not difficult for you to cede the pulpit to him. And uh, so he comes back into town, and he picks up the, uh, the scroll, he picks up the text of Isaiah, and he reads it. But then he, he, he assumes some things here, too. Usually there is someone then who would stand up and explain the text, and after explaining the text, someone else might stand up and give an interpretation of the text. Jesus assumes all three of those missions of the prophet to himself. And, uh, and in so doing, then, he says, you've heard the text. Now what you have to understand about the text is that its, um, is that its message is, is relevant and clear. And it is intended for the people who are there to listen. You know, it's interesting because even in, um, even in contemporary thought and in contemporary study of the scriptures, this action on behalf of Jesus is somewhat unusual because usually what happens is there's three people it takes to deliver the Sunday sermon. And, uh, and a Sunday lesson. One of them is the one who reads the text. One of them is the one who signifies the press. And one of them is the one who makes it down. And here he has not uh, distributed those among the three usual people. He has assumed them for himself. And he has taken on the role not only of proclaimer, but also of interpreter and of teacher. And that's kind of significant because, because that's exactly who the Lord is in Luke's gospel. He is not only the one that proclaims the good news, he is also the one who explains it to us. And he is also the one who promises to send it to those who are pure in heart, to those who are more settled, um, those who had spent more time reflecting over the scriptures. But, uh, but here, he has it all. And then he says, Today, today, it has begun, and that the text is being fulfilled even as you listen. And so he places himself now, and this is the beginning of his conflict with the people of Israel. After reading what this is all about, then he places himself as the example of the fulfillment of the text. And here's where things start to go a bit wrong for him, because here's where he begins then to assume unto himself the total role of Messiah, and not just the role of the one who, another prophet to proclaim that which is to come. 
And I'd invite you to sit back and to, to think about this a little bit now. You know, we ourselves, too, consider ourselves, as were the Jewish in many ways, an, an eschatological people. We have heard from the very beginning, from the very beginning of our faith life, we have heard about, um, about the second coming of the Lord and how the Blessed Mother and the saints and so forth will return with him. So he'll have companions, not only return to him, but they're together writing as him for the rest of his public ministry. He is the one who is to bring this about, and he is the one who is referenced also as the future. And he is the one who is going to bring the future. He is the harbinger of the future. He is the messenger of the future. He is going to bring the future back to Israel, back to Judea, back to Galilee. And so he says that, and so he said, and so to do that, I have to become both preacher and interpreter, for I myself am the one who is going to bring this about. Now, some of the people find that very, very distressing. And we know the gospel goes on to be distressing in that way. Because how can we say that? How can Jesus say that, you know, now that now it is going to be fulfilled in the, in the coming of the, of the Messiah? Um, well, most of the Christians probably at that time. And, and I think that he, yes, he, uh, he's very adamant about the fact that this is, uh, this is what his mission is. He, he's, he's interesting in another way, too, that when, in fact, um, John the Baptist is discouraged when he himself ends up in prison, and we have to remember that John, why he had clear sight, why he recognized the Messiah, while he expected the Messiah to bring in the utopian age when evil will be crushed and goodness will be lifted up in his diamond garments. Um, and then he begins to see the church falter. And in seeing the church falter, he, um, he begins then to wonder, is this really the end? Because after all, um, Jesus is going to, is, is going to, as the Psalms say, level the hills and fill in the valleys. He, as the Messiah, is, is, is going to bring about this destruction of evil in the age of, of which he has appeared. So we know that the Baptist then has some questions, and the questions are, you know, are you really the one? You're not doing it exactly by the book. Um, but he will do it by the book in his own time and in his own place. But he's, uh, he's concerned that this is not the real Messiah. And so what does he do? But um, what does Jesus do? But he sends messengers back to John. And in it he says this very passage from Isaiah 68.1, The Spirit of the Lord has given to me, for he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives to bind the ears of the blind with a man right. The goddess that, uh, that he is, in fact, the one who is, is to come. And he says to John, your witnesses, tell them what you see. You see the blind walk, and uh, the blind see, and the lame walk. Um, you know that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, 
the dissonance between between the Jesus that you see and what's happening to him and to me, and uh, the fact that uh, uh, the uh, the the Lord Himself is making manifest the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecies, and it would be like like you and I sitting back. We hear about the end of the world all the time, the second coming of the Lord all the time. Um, well, maybe not all the time, but we should hear about it more than we do, I'm sure. But but with all that sitting in place, what if someone showed up and said, all right, you know that at the end of the world the Lord is coming in glory. You know that he will take, there will be a general judgment. You know that there will be a time when when the people get into it, when the people begin to see that it's really taking place. And uh, And we ourselves would be shocked. We, we give lip service to the future. We give lip service to the eschaton. But how many people expect it immediately? How many people would not be surprised to look up and see the Lord coming on the clouds? I know that uh, I was with a group of priests one time, and um, we had an outsider come into the group and ask us the question, how many of you believe that the second coming of the Lord could happen anytime, could happen today. And there was only one priest in the group who raised his hand. That for most of them, it was a futuristic concept, what we call an eschatological concept, and that it didn't challenge them in the present moment of their lives at all. But it, uh, it was, in fact, a legitimate question, and a question which I think if we thought deeply about it, should have had kind of should have the response should have been kind of shocking for us because we should have expected the coming of the Lord at any time. And in doing that then, and in not creating the surprise and the shock that we did not honestly expect the Lord to come back anytime soon. And I would dare say that if we were to go through and uh, and ease, uh, ask each person there, um, you know, do you expect it in your lifetime? I suspect they would have said no also. And, uh, and so these expectations become part of, of, uh, part of the narrative of our faith, while at the same time ceasing to lose a great deal of reality in their midst. And so what I say then is that while this is an active part of our life, it should be and almost something we expect all the time. Um, certainly in, in the church, we find that uh, those who do not think about it much, those who do not pray about it much, um, probably would be stunned if the Lord were to walk back and, and into the sacristy at, at Mass and say, all right, here we go. Um, we would be shocked. And, uh, and yet... Sadly, we shouldn't be, since Jesus now has shocked the Nazareans, which means we haven't progressed in many ways um, from, from, those, from those ancient times when people were also here, stunned at the second coming of Christ. And that we, we find that when we are stunned by the concept of the second return of Christ, there is a lack of zeal. There is a lack of grasping and of understanding what the outcome of all this is. You know, you can, you can hear a, a 
married man saying, um, yeah, I believe that the end of the world is coming, but I just went out and bought brand new mops and brand new pails, and I expect to be around for a long time cleaning the, cleaning the stable. And, uh, yeah. So when we get to this gospel then, when we get to this uh, Lucan gospel, and we are confronted with the possibility of the imminence of the end of time, when all that happens to us, it draws us up quickly to ourselves. And it helps us then, in a way, to understand something of the difficulties of the church. For if, in fact, Christians believed that the world was going to end imminently, immediately, we would not be so obsessed with the structures and the institutions that we are. We we managed to strike that that uh, that we're we're not prepared, and that we really feel like we have lots of time. And uh, in looking at that lots of time, we can't believe that we ourselves are going to see or to experience the second coming of the Lord in our day and in our age. So. Today, when we listen to the story from the Gospel of Luke, we know that Luke is constructing the story to go from beginning to end. We knew, for instance, that the power of the Spirit returned Jesus to Galilee in order that he might tell them that, uh, and, and everyone who passed, praised him, they said, that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. This he stood up to read and read. They handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found that the, that he found the place where it had been written in the prophecies of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord has been given to me, for he has anointed me. The, the Lord urged me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives and to the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free and to proclaim the Lord's year of favor. So it is then the mission is to begin in full because now he has confronted them with the idea that this is not just another prophet. This is the teaching of the one who is to come and that we are to come to understand that this is not just another warning some centuries and centuries away but to understand this is being taught directly to the people of the age and being taught directly to the people of our own age and our own time. There's none of us who should feel free to, uh, to go. It should feel free that uh, somehow or other the Lord is speaking directly to us and directly to the people to whom he sends us and that there is not a lot of time but there is, in fact, a day of reckoning, and we ourselves are asked to be prepared for that. And how many of us are well prepared for us? For those many shall we enter into the kingdom of God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.